0: inspiring conversations with the most compelling performers, educators, authors, and product manufacturers of our time. This is the show about all that's new and neat with Clarinet, with the neatest people in the industry. Welcome to the Clarinet Podcast. Sometimes as artists, we get so wound up in what we do, we forget there's a whole world out there and that success isn't really about where we play and for how many people, but whether we're really doing what we want to do. Today on the program, my guest is Kidan Azmay, who shares great insights into his career as a performer, improviser, and composer, and why he sees these activities as one and the same. We also discuss his experience moving to New York City just one week before the 9-11 terrorist attacks in 2001, and his experience as a musician in the Knights Chamber Orchestra, Silk Road Ensemble, and numerous other projects. I'm your host, Sean Perrin, and you're listening to the Clarinet Podcast at Clarinet.com. If you'd like to listen to an extended, ad-free version of today's episode and many others, head to Clarinet.com slash subscribe. Don't forget to visit the Clareneat store for links to buy official apparel and special offers, products, and services, some of which are available exclusively to our listeners. And, of course, I love to hear from listeners all over the world. If you'd like to get in touch with me or be a guest on the program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button at our website. Again, that's Clareneat.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show, and thank you especially to our sponsors for helping make it all possible. Hosting for Clarinet is sponsored by Bakun and their new Vocalese mouthpiece, complex resonance at a reasonable price. Get yours at www.bakunmusical.com and save 10% on any accessory purchase with code CLARINET at checkout. Have you wanted to try D'Addario Reads but weren't quite sure which to choose? Here's how to decide. Reserve Reads come in a white and blue box. They feature a traditional blank and are perfect for those who want a focused sound with the quickest response possible. Reserve Classic Reads come in a white and purple box. They feature a thicker blank that provides an expanded tonal color palette, clarity of articulation, and added flexibility. And the new Reserve Evolution reeds come in a white and yellow box. They feature our thickest blank and have a heavy spine for added projection and exceptional tonal depth, warmth, and flexibility. You'll have to try it to believe it. Try Reserve Reads now at your local music store or head to clarinet.com reeds reads to buy a box right now. I'm here on the show today with Keenan Azme, directly from New York City. Keenan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Sean. Thanks.
0: So I've been looking forward to talk to you for quite a while. You're a very versatile musician. For those of our listeners who may not be fully aware of what you do, would you just give a brief introduction, sort of in a nutshell, in less than a minute of what you would tell someone that you just met at a party?
1: Absolutely. Uh, yes, uh, my name is Kenan Azme, I'm a clarinetist and a composer. I'm from Damascus, Syria, uh, lived uh, most of my life there, moved to New York 2001. New York sucked me in like it does to lots of other people. And now I lead a number of projects, uh, mainly playing as solos with orchestras. But I am a member of Road Ensemble. But also I lead my own Arabic jazz quartet, the Kinal Azmi City Band. Uh, but also I commission lots of composers to write me concertos too. And uh, everything in between. I play music that I like. I think that's at the heart of what I do.
0: In a nutshell, actually, that's such great advice. I, w- I think more people could, could uh, you know, heed that advice. And But I noticed you said you moved to New York in 2001. That's that's quite a year to move there. Um, what was that like, you know, post-terrorist attacks in that city?
1: Well, I, I finished my, my uh, double degree back in Damascus. I did music and engineering, engineering electrical engineering. And then when I finished from both, I wanted to, you know, pursue my higher education. So I went for one year to Boston, actually, in 2000. But when I was in Boston, I was like, New York was was very close, and I always wanted to study with Charles Neidegg. And I applied for the school, and I got in. And I moved to New York about a week before 9-11 happened. So, you know, you're moving to a new city. It's a very competitive school and all of this. And then suddenly, overnight, you become the other. You know, uh, I am an Arab, and I speak Arabic, and suddenly you, you are in this very interesting place. Uh, of course, I was shocked like the rest of the world, uh, how everybody was shocked about, about what happened, and and I saw the tragedy in the city, of course. Uh, but in the meantime, it, it became a, an immediate questioning about identity and about how do I fit in this, and uh, and how can I conduct my life in a, in the most normal way as possible, given the reaction to what happened to 9-11, both in the U.S. and also abroad.
0: That's so interesting, especially that you moved there so recently before the attacks. And um, many people who do live in New York remember sort of where they were the day that that happened. Where were you the day that it happened?
1: That year I lived in a wonderful student house called International House, uh, very close to Manhattan School of Music. And that morning, actually, I was supposed to meet friends of mine who are coming from Jersey, and we're supposed to meet downtown, you know, very close to the the financial district, basically. And uh, I think uh, what happened is I lost touch with them. I remember my sister calling me from Cleveland, and, uh, you know, she's like, oh, okay, fine. I'm I'm glad you're asleep. Uh, This happened. Just please be careful. Uh, And apparently my parents were trying to call me from Damascus, but all the phones, international phones, uh, were, were, were basically down. And I just went downstairs. There's like a TV uh, lounge in the student house where I was uh, staying. And that's where I watched everything, uh, basically. Um, You know, yes, I was in New York, but I I think I watch everything like everybody else in the world. Um, And what happened felt distant. I I didn't know the scope of the city. I was very new to New York. I don't know how far I am geographically. But yeah, I I remember clearly, and I remember immediately that night, uh, all the student body of that student house, about 700 students uh, met together, and people were, you know, trying to discuss how people can volunteer uh, or what can be done.
0: The International House for Manhattan School, isn't that, it is in Manhattan, about 134th Avenue, isn't it?
1: It's on 125th
0: Street, and, and Broadway, yeah. Pretty close. I haven't walked past it in like 10 years, so. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but, yeah. But I know exactly where that is. That must have just been totally surreal. So do you think in what ways did this shape your um, musical life after that?
1: I cannot respond to this without uh, making a statement about how I like, how I look at art in general, because I think that's where it falls into. Uh, you know, some people say there are two main philosophies when you think of art making. Uh, one school of thought suggests that you do art in response to the world around you. You know, like you you create music in response to an act of violence or an act of beauty or anything. Uh, Another school of thought suggests that it's the artist's role to recreate the world in the most ideal way according to him or her. My personal philosophy has always been that you do art to experience emotions that you don't have the luxury of experiencing in real life. You go to what's beyond what we are able to experience. And I think when you look at arts in this way, I don't think, you know, you play a Mozart concerto to feel happy or sad. I think you do that because you want to feel something that is more complex than what you can express and what you can experience in real life. And that's what what makes art, I think, unique is that it it, it manages to give us uh, these incredible options. And that's, what, uh, that's why we like arts, whether we are artists or people who enjoy the arts.
0: You know, I absolutely love that. And I, I have to say that I think... I've never thought about it before, but I think you've actually hit the nail on the head for the reason that I prefer um, modern or abstract paintings, for example, instead of a lot of scenery or or things like that from the past. Because I, I I don't know, I, I, instead of looking at a, some sort of um, landscape, I'd rather experience like a direct emotion from the colors or experience something a little different, like Salvador Dali, um, to take me somewhere new, you know, and I, I find that my musical taste is, is kind of similar. So that's a really interesting perspective on that.
1: The fact that you use like abstract painting, you know, music, especially instrumental music, music that doesn't have lyrics, is maybe the, one of the most abstract art form. We are moved by electromagnetic waves and uh, and air You know, like that's what what moves us, and uh, and it's quite quite amazing when you think
0: about it. Well, I've got another show about a, a band called Radiohead and I interview people who are sort of associated with, with that. And um, there was an author recently, he was talking about how he analyzes the lyrics to a lot of the songs. And And I remember saying, well, this is a little strange because some of the the songs lyrics are completely abstract and they were written, literally written out of, drawn out of a hat. So what is the point of analyzing these What beyond musically? Why don't we just focus on that? And we had a bit of a disagreement about this, but it is very interesting that you, that you say that. And I think that there's so much to be said for kind of enjoying the art form for what it is sometimes and taking it out of the context that we have. Absolutely. So let's get on to the clarinet and, and some of the, the music that you've been playing, of course. Um, you're very successful in multiple genres. And I sort of wanted to just ask how, like, what kind of advice you would have as far as playing multiple styles of music and becoming comfortable and broadening one's mind. I know a lot of people, myself included they tend to get very fixated on what they do and it's it's difficult to stretch beyond that. So I guess any and all feedback or advice you'd have about that very broad question? Uh,
1: the question also invites uh, me intervening a little bit because you use the word successful. And I don't know what that means, uh, really, to be honest. I think many of us, you know, in the music world, we're obsessed about being successful. And for me, really, the, the idea of success is if you're managing to play what you like to play, number one. Uh, and then if you're able to be genuine and honest presenting what you're presenting. This is for me the definition of success, is when you feel content in the moment you're holding your instrument and playing, or the moment you're you know, having a pen and a music paper and writing a new piece. I would like to redefine the word success in that way. It's not, it's not like playing Carnegie Hall and playing Royal Albert Hall in London, I don't think that's the only success possible, I think. Success has, should have a much wider, uh, much broader sense, because the possibilities are really unlimited. In terms of uh, what kind of advice I give, let me give you a little bit of a, of a historical background of what, what was the moment that convinced me that I should really widen my spectrum of the music that I like. I was in Damascus. This is maybe six or seven years after I started learning learning the clarinet. My parents came back from a trip to Hungary, and they brought me two LPs. One LP was, uh, I think, Mozart Weber and maybe and in Rossini, uh, Introduction, Theme and Variations, and Mozart Concerto, and maybe Weber Concertino, uh, performed by Bela Kovacs. And it was a wonderful LP, and I loved it. And uh, you know, I heard it like a million times. But also they gave me another LP by this crazy clarinetist, and I mean crazy in the most positive sense of the word, uh, called Erno Kalaikis, who's a gypsy Hungarian clarinetist. And I used to play these two LPs back to back. It drove me crazy, is the realization that this is the same instrument. And this is exactly the same instrument. It uses the same, like you use it the same way. You can create a total different sound, and you can use this music in a total different genre. And my fascination became even bigger when I started to listen to Benny Goodman a few years later because that also gave me a totally different perspective. So the clarinet by, by default or maybe by chance or maybe both, uh, lends itself quite easily for a variety of, genre, of genres. Uh, it already has a historical background in a variety of genres. So for me trying to play things beyond the standard repertoire is a no-brainer actually. Because uh, if you look at the clarinet worldwide, there are certainly more things than only Western European tradition. There are by far uh, more variety of things. And I'm somebody who's curious by nature. And I love to, to try to explore all these different musical vocabularies. And that's what I invite everybody to do. Uh, of course, I ask people always to try to uh, reach out horizontally you know, I think we do this in our, our lives by default, you know, when we try different cuisines uh, and we listen to different music, but also performing different music, I think is very important. And in that, when you get to something you like, I think that's when you have to start to dig vertically to really spend a lot of time trying to learn, let's say, uh, the clarinet in in, uh, in Turkish music or, or the clarinet of the Balkans or how they use the clarinet in some parts of India. I think only then can you really get closer to the source. In the Western uh, kind of music education, we spend many, many years learning a repertoire. And I think you need to have double amount of that time to be able to uh, to master another tradition too. But I think it's really, it's so, uh, super exciting for me. Uh, so I cannot turn a blind eye to any tradition that I know exists and a tradition that I enjoy listening to.
0: So I think sort of what you're saying is that the, the multiple histories of the clarinet, although they seem to be sort of widespread and somewhat separate to a classical player or a jazz player exclusively, these are actually sort of one and the same. It's the history of the instrument.
1: I think so. I think so. You know, I don't believe in like geographical borders when it comes to, to art making. Uh, I don't think there is a, like a line, a very specific line that divides east from the west or north from the south. Uh, music is a continuum by default. And I think uh, different traditions, yes, there are different vocabularies in different traditions. But I think a good performer should only, not only master one vocabulary, I think you should master the philosophies of different vocabularies and how you can learn a variety of ways to play one thing. The biggest advice that I give uh, students that I work with in, in the various master classes I give is every. it's not enough to be a performer. You have to be a composer, you have to be an improviser. Uh, and because I also don't see where the limits are between the improviser, the composer and the performer.
0: Well, a lot of these limits are artificial. Like I've talked about this before on the show, but even back in Baroque and classical music, like a Baroque player would absolutely be able to know how to improvise or someone could play a cadenza, um, all these sorts of things, not to mention, you know, like a figured bass, all these things were part of being a musician, you know? And, and I also want to draw upon something else you said, which is uh, you're kind of talking about boundaries and, a lot of the boundaries in music are, are only put there looking back. It's not like one day in the Baroque era, someone just put down a you know, put up a sign and was like, All right, time to change now. This is this is the this is the day that we start writing differently. It's it's only when we look back and at the history <laughs> and right. and observe, okay, this seems to be about the time that it ended. It was it was always a slow transition, just like it is now. We don't even notice the times changing.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I and I try to do this in the in the work I do, like when I give a recital or when I give like when I play a concerto, I think it should be totally natural if you have in a recital, in a clarinet recital, you you know, you play, I don't know, maybe Brahms first and then you play the Berg four pieces, uh, Schumann, then you play a John Tower, uh, you know, uh, solo clarinet piece followed by a clarinet and DJ followed by you writing music for Indian classical dance and a tabla player. I don't think there's a problem with that. Actually, the opposite is true. I think this is very healthy. And uh, and only then can you really have a clearer idea of what you want to do. The more you try to not consume, you try to really enjoy, I think makes you think more about the details of what make these things different. And how you can bring that difference to to lights more?
0: absolutely. And I guess with programming, it's good to explore different genres horizontally as far as like on the earth, but but also in time to go back and and experiment in different regions and time periods and and all that in your programming. so absolutely, absolutely very interesting. So you mentioned improvisation and composing, which are two areas that most people who play clarinet myself included would consider themselves to be rather limited in. so, you seem so well-versed in, in both. So is there any advice you have for trying to get into either, even just to sort of get your feet wet?
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, there are, there are several ways of doing this. Uh, the first time I wrote a piece of music, I was maybe nine or, or eight years old, something like this. It was just like a simple melody, basically few notes back to back. That's that's what it was. Uh, fast forward, I was doing my doctorate at the Graduate Center in, in New York City. And there was a course that I uh, read about, titled "Conducting for Composers," and I was uh, not a conductor, and I'm not a composer. I've I've written a few lead sheets for my own jazz band, but but I wasn't I wasn't a composer in the sense writing a full score for for orchestra. But anyway, I thought you, you know, Kina, maybe this is the opportunity, so I registered for that class, and. Uh, Maurice Perez is the professor who was a wonderful, wonderful uh, professor. He passed away uh, a couple of years back. I had basically four months to write a piece for orchestra, full orchestra, and to conduct it for the class with the Queen's College Orchestra. And it was an incredible pressure. I had to learn how to use Sibelius, which is a notation program, because you want to export scores that the orchestra members can read. And I had to learn a lot about orchestration. But what I trusted the most was my ear, of course, I'm not undermining uh, the need for a really systematic education when it comes to composing. But also, I don't think you should be discouraged if you don't have that background. All of us, during our studies, we studied counterpoint, we studied harmony, uh, ear training and all of this. So we are actually quite well-equipped, at least to try things out. Uh, and so that piece was back in, uh, I think, 2007. Uh, Two years later, I was commissioned by the Osnabrück Symphony in Germany to write a piece for orchestra. Uh, they just heard a few uh, smaller pieces of mine, and uh, I just kept kept going at it. So this year has been quite quite great for me as a composer. I was commissioned to write a new concerto for the Seattle Symphony, a clarinet concerto, which I premiered with them. <clears throat> and I wrote a piece for clarinet and orchestra with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, and uh, I wrote a, like a trio uh, for the New York Philharmonic Chamber uh, Music Series. So yeah. suddenly, I never thought of myself as, as, as the composer. Suddenly, I was the composer. But I like also the multifaceted things. You know, Sometimes in the same concert, I can be the composer and the performer. I think the only way to do it is to just sit down with a blank piece of music paper and see what happens. Because I think this exercise, regardless if you end up pursuing composition as a profession or not, just seeing that you have this blank piece of paper and you have all the choices in the world you can put in there, that simple action changes your perspective when you look at a score that is already filled with music. Because you know, when you look at a score by, I don't know, by, by Penderecki, for example, you know that he, of all the choices that were available for him, he chose this note and that note. And that comes with the question, why? Why did he choose that? So I think composing really informs a lot what you do as a performer. So I I encourage everybody to do it, and no matter how complicated or how simple the outcome is.
0: When you're in composition mode, do you work at a piano or do you use the clarinet? I mean, me personally, I find that I'm not a great guitarist, but noodling around and inventing ideas and song forms and stuff on guitar comes easier to me than the clarinet, which is a more melody-based instrument.
1: Uh, you know, I think noodling is the right way to do it. Uh, it's hard for me to do one thing for a long time. So I'll be practicing something for a concerto or, or some solo appearance. And then I, I find myself just doing these strange licks on the clarinet. And if I, if, I, if I hear something I like, I, I keep that, I have a kind of a sketchbook, but also I record sometimes things on, uh, on my phone. They might hold a little key for an idea that can uh, become a piece eventually. Uh, but when I'm uh, sitting down to write, actually I try to use only paper and pen, just to see how what my brain's limitations are. But also being on a keyboard helps you
0: a lot. Uh, in terms of hearing the harmonies right away. So some people like to kind of improvise and then write that down, but you like to start on the paper and then kind of go the other way.
1: Yes, you know, the thing is, uh, because I don't want my limited piano playing to be the basis of what I'm writing. And also I don't want my advanced uh, clarinet skills to also uh, inspire what I'm writing. And I don't want my limited clarinet technique, for example, to stop me from writing things that are more complex on the clarinet. Uh, You you know, like you have to forget, I think, sometimes that you're an instrumentalist when you compose. But most of the time, you have to know how, like even basically, how does cello produce sound? You know, what are the strings on the cello? How can they, uh, are there any string crossing there? Can the clarinetist breathe in this moment or not? Of course, you will know these details. Uh, You have to like study all of that. But uh, towards the end of the day, it's just, I think, writing just out of your brain is, is quite uh, amazing. And I do that as an exercise a lot.
0: Well, and this is why I love playing the music of the great orchestral composers is they somehow, and I, I don't understand myself, but they somehow had such an intimate understanding of every single instrument's capabilities and ways to feature them idiomatically. And uh, I always feel like I'm playing a real polished sort of piece for the instrument, even if it's challenging, it's never something totally ridiculous, which I have to say, I have seen on Broadway shows or other things that are, are a little less serious. Um, and I think that that is one thing that kind of lends itself to that the true care that was put into all those elements that, that seem sort of removed from the music, you know?
1: Absolutely. know, you're right. Uh, yes, that reflects years of training and years of curiosity. I always, for example, when you, if you're playing a Mozart concert, if now you are a student or a professional learning the Mozart concerto, I think if you really, like like, like they say, you nail your part, you have it all down and you're ready to play it, uh, maybe now you know about 5% of the piece, I think. To really know how to play a Mozart clarinet concerto, you have to know every single part in the orchestra. And you should be able to play every part, basically. This is when you start to know the piece. And actually, this is when it becomes exciting, where you can play all the tutti parts with everyone. And, uh, and you see lots of great solos do that, uh, especially Mozart as, a, as an example. It has to, be f- to become fun. It's not like you play and then you wait for the orchestra to, to be done playing their part and then you play again. No, actually, you join them if you like. It has to be more freer than what, I, when, what we think it is right now.
0: Absolutely. Well, that's such interesting insight. I, I bet that seeing it that way from a composer kind of perspective, all the music that you play is is, uh, is so helpful. And I hope that I can find the time to kind of compose more for myself. And, and uh, do you get feedback from other instrumentalists then? I mean, I imagine I could write, you know, a decent clarinet part for something, but maybe not a piano score to go with it. How do you cross that bridge?
1: Uh, you know, lots of the times uh, I
0: ask, I ask
1: questions. I am never shy asking questions. Uh, I surrounded myself, you know, in the last number of years with lots of very supportive friends. You know, I finished the score and uh, if, if there's something that I don't feel comfortable writing for, I do ask. I wrote recently a piece, for example, for Harp. Well, not recently, this is already four or five years ago. But I, I had no no clear ideas of how Harp works. So, you know, I ask questions and, uh, you know, a number of emails back and forth and then you have your answers. There are unlimited resources. There are so many books about orchestration. So you can, all of this, all of this info is available. It's only about finding the time to really work on that. But uh, so far, lots of my pieces have been played. I get asked to always to send scores of pieces. There are a few pieces of mine that are more popular than others, and, uh, and they have a life on their own, which is great.
0: It's so funny. Every time I hear about harp, I remember this orchestration story that I once heard. I don't remember where I read or heard this, but they're basically saying that um, the harp is one of those instruments that is pretty much only able to hear in very reduced orchestration moments. So, But they were talking about a section, a piece where a harp sort of started a pattern and then other instruments came in and they said that there's a point obviously where the harp becomes inaudible, but they chose to keep the harpist playing for two reasons. One was visually for the audience and... And the second was for the harpists, uh, musical fulfillment, so that they were able to participate in what, in what they'd started and finished with the ensemble. I thought that was a really interesting mindset to know that they can no longer be heard, but they're still gonna be seen and enjoy playing and be part of the, the music, so. <laughs> of a, That's right. Yeah, right. <laughs> very interesting. So you play live a lot, of course, and a lot of the live music, especially what I was watching on YouTube, um, there's many videos of you, which are all really fantastic, but you're using a microphone in many of them. And I know that many clarinetists in this day and age, they want to start exploring with using a microphone. So do you have advice on playing with a mic, choosing a mic or maybe using a pickup or reverb or any kind of settings you use to get a you know a great mic sound or work with the mic? First of all, I, I think this, the, the natural
1: sound of the instrument is what should, everybody should be aiming for the microphone will not improve your sound. It will only amplify the sound you're projecting. So I I ask clarinetists always not to count on what mic they use. uh, Rather, but I think it's better to be very critical about the sound you produce. Uh, All of us will have to find our personal sound that will please us. Really, I think this is the most important. If you don't like your own sound, no microphone will make you happy. And in some of the videos that I have on YouTube, uh, you know, whether I'm playing with my uh, jazz quartet that includes like a drum set, or sometimes I'm playing like uh, an outdoor festival where you need to be amplified. Uh, I use a microphone, a pickup microphone uh, by this company called DPA. Of course I'm not, I don't mean to be endorsing anything here, but a friend of mine suggested that, uh, that I use it, that I've been using it. Is it the, the best option? I don't know, but it's been working for me.
0: It's called DPA? It's DPA. I
1: think it's a a Danish or Swedish company. They get used a lot, actually, in recording studios now. And lots of live players use it. And it has a mount that you can put on the bell. And, uh, you know, it's like a a small, very small condenser mic.
0: Yeah, I think the production element to someone who has no experience playing with a microphone seems a bit overwhelming. But, I mean, you're right. If you buy a mic that's suited to the task, then you've kind of taken some of that job away. I mean, you don't need to calculate the distance you have to put it at or, or, you know, exactly which type of microphone you want to use in that instance. Just you worry about your sound and buy an appropriate mic and and go. Right. You know, and also there's like a big community of people like
1: also online, but also in this podcast, you know, people ask questions about like, what should we use? And, uh, and again, I think it's a personal taste thing, really. Uh, some people will recommend mics, other people will say, you know, having a mic on a stand will do it, because you can control how far you are from the mic, you can get closer when you're playing in the middle register where actually the instrument is a bit softer, and you know, stand away when you're playing high up and screaming on the instrument. You know, like, because when you mount a mic on the instrument, the distance between you and the mic is fixed, you cannot escape the mic, the mic is there, regardless of the volume you're producing, right? Right? while uh, you can control have more control if the mic is on a stand where you can you know step back a little bit if you're really uh, blowing hard on the instrument
0: there was a couple of videos where um, really gorgeous playing but you're in a church and there was some microphones there and you seem to be moving closer or farther based on the response you're getting in the room um, and the, the registers you're playing and the volumes you're projecting at
1: Actually, for that for that concert,
0: if I think I know what you, which one you're talking about, as uh,
1: the amplification was minimal in the church. Actually, mostly it was acoustic sound, but the concert was recorded live, so that's where the microphones were there. That was the
0: natural resonance of that church. It was amazing.
1: Yes, and wow. uh, so no no added reverb was there. But because since it was a low, very long church, they had to do some kind of phasing, as they had like uh, speakers in the back of the church, for example, towards the end of the church where there is a little bit of latency so that the two signals coming from directly from the stage and the amplified sound are not different at different times. So it's a system of complicated uh, amplification in a, in a, in a church. Uh, they use that mainly in churches just because of the reverb time is quite, quite long.
0: Well, for those listening, I'll have to link to that in the show notes because it was a just gorgeous performance. And, um, but I was sure there was some sort of added reverb there, but that's amazing that the church was that resonant. Wow. Yes, yes, it was. So let's talk a little bit about a couple ensembles that you're in. Uh, first of all, the Grammy-nominated Knights Orchestra. You're involved in several capacities with that ensemble. What does it mean to you to get to participate in that?
1: Uh, I played with the Knights in three three different tours uh, as a soloist every time. Uh, first time was in, I think, 2008. I played my uh, suite for improviser orchestra, with them, actually this video you're talking about, uh, I did that piece, this is the middle movement of my suite for improviser orchestra, and I did that with the Knights back in 2008. In the last couple of years, uh, I did, they commissioned me, uh, it was a co-commission with Carnegie Hall, they commissioned me to write a piece, uh, which was ended up being a concertino grosso for clarinet, violin, and, and orchestra, which we toured with uh, in, around the U.S., and uh, the final concert of that tour was just uh, now a month and a half ago uh, at Carnegie Hall. Uh, it's great playing with this orchestra. I think it's a wonderful collective of people who are all incredibly strong individuals, uh, both uh, intellectually and musically. And uh, it's a very democratic also situation where orchestra members contribute equally uh, to the collective in terms of artistic input. And this is wonderful. Uh, so when you go, it's a small family that continues to expand, and working with them has been has been uh, simply wonderful. Uh, of course, I overlap. I know many many members of this orchestra throughout my years in New York. So it's not that I was like when they invited me to play. It's not that I just joined them, as a stranger, I knew pretty much most of the orchestra members from different capacities in New York City.
0: Absolutely. In addition to the knights, you've also played, of course, with the Silk Road Ensemble, which is Yo-Yo Ma's group. Um, what's it like working with with that group?
1: The Silk Road Ensemble is uh, is a family of musicians, uh, improvisers, composers, uh, thinkers, educators, uh, who use instru- their instruments to communicate. Basically, uh, I joined the ensemble around 2012, and uh, and I've been an active composer and clarinetist with them since since, since then. Uh, our last album, uh, which was Sing Me Home, uh, which we released two years ago, won Grammy for Best World Music Album. But also, you know, I've been collaborating with members of the ensemble for many years now in different capacities. And actually, uh, this is to me also two years ago. Uh, I was commissioned by the Elf which is this gorgeous new hall in Hamburg, uh, to write a clarinet and cello piece uh, for yo and myself. Which we premiered actually in Hamburg, and so that was kind of uh, the side effects of this pool, the wonderful pool of, of Silk Road, as a pool of musicians who are excited to to interact with each other, and uh, and we've been on tour since then, and uh, there are a bunch of projects that are happening in the coming uh, couple seasons with Silk Road where I'm involved as a clarinetist and as composer.
0: What's it like working with Yo-Yo Ma? He always seems kind of uh, cheerful and relaxed at the same time in his videos. This is exactly right.
1: (laughs) You you know, he's uh, he's one of the most generous people I know. With him, you cannot interact 50%. You have to interact 100%. He is 100% all the time. Whether he's playing the cello, he's communicating. Whether he's talking to you, he's communicating. He's like born to communicate, basically and he uses cello as his main mean of communication and uh, and of course he, you know he doesn't need my uh, my recommendation you know it's uh, he's an incredible idol for me and not only his musicianship but also how he thinks about the world and what needs to change in the world and uh, and how where does music fit in the world so i've been incredibly honored to be working with him uh, closely for the last uh, 7 years or so
0: well most people of course uh, especially in the general public would would know him for performing the works of Bach and the like but it's so interesting to know that he's in there in so many other genres and and interacting with such a wide variety of players it's it's just a real testament to you know the musical prowess of not only him but people who work with him like yourself and and the entire organization so it's incredible because the amount of new music that was written for Yo-Yo Ma in the
1: last years is just, just incredible. Somebody who boosted a repertoire of an instrument, but also the whole idea when he, you know, when he started Silk Road. I don't think the idea was like, okay, we create this, uh, this ensemble so that it just it becomes this thing that does only that. I think uh, what he thought about Silk Road was this should be a model for thinking for the future musicians. Is that, you know, that you expand the way you look at music, that it includes other cultures. And the fact that you cannot live only within the lens of the European uh, repertoire of the, you know, 18th, 19th century. And so th- the whole idea of expanding and looking at the multitudes of cultures, I think that's what inspired his work. And uh, and he continues to be
0: leading the way. You know, I love that we've almost come full circle to what we were talking about at the beginning. So super interesting. So Keenan, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. Um, We're going to take our one and only break here. And when we come back for the members section, for those who help support the podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about what it was like studying with Charles Nydick. And also I want to ask the, of course, lightning round questions to Keenan. So head to the members section on the website and I'll see you there. Thank you so much for listening to the Clarinet podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, I'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you happen to listen to your podcasts. You can also check out the website at Clarinet.com for over a 100 hours of free audio content with the world's greatest Clarinet players, manufacturers, and more. If you loved what you heard, I'd love it if you'd support the podcast for as little as $1 per month. As a thank you, you'll get access to extended versions of many episodes, bonus content, and more. Hosting for Clarinet is sponsored by Bakun and their new Vocalese mouthpiece, complex resonance at a reasonable price. Get yours at www.bakunmusical.com and save 10% on any accessory purchase with code CLARINET at checkout. Don't forget to check out D'Addario's line of Reserve, Reserve Classic, and new Reserve Evolution reeds. You can head to your local music store or to clarinet.com reads to buy a box right now. That's all for now. Be sure to tune in next time for more of what's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry, on the Claire Neat Podcast.